salvation through the work of blood shall run. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet that force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one. But the union makes us strong. Hello and welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program providing a gender analysis of contemporary issues from Australia and internationally. I'm Giselle Hanna. This year marks the 100-year anniversary of the Russian Revolution, a momentous event in human history. In 1917, Russian women garment workers went on strike. They were protesting the desperate poverty caused by the First World War, symbolised in the infamous bread queues. On International Women's Day that year, before the morning was out, tens of thousands of women textile workers were on strike. Joined by housewives, they marched to the metal factories, demanding that the mostly male workers join them. It sparked the revolution, the overthrow of the Tsar and the attempt to build a new world order. What happened to the gains of the revolution? What's the meaning of socialism in this centenary year? How do we understand the failure, collapse and rejection of the totalitarian Soviet model of socialism? And most importantly, what are the tasks for the international workers of the world to realise a just and fair society for all? To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined by Beatrix Campbell, writer, broadcaster and feminist activist based in the UK. Campbell is on a speaking tour in Australia, hosted by the Search Foundation, discussing the issues that face working people of the world in light of the 100-year anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Did it work, the Russian Revolution? Is there, um, are there lessons for all of us? I think the great paradox is that this revolution, it kind of happens in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Bolshevik revolutionaries at the time and many of their, well, all of their Marxist comrades would have imagined that uh, a revolution of this kind would happen in a society that was industrialised, that had elements of democracy, that was developed, in other words. And it happens in the one place that no one would have expected it to happen in Russia, which was... Uh, a desperate place in the middle of a war. It didn't have a sizable working class. It was impoverished. It was a desperate place with with no experience, really, of democracy and everything that goes with that, the the making of public institutions, the practice of uh, democratic life. So it happens there in this moment of, heroic combustion when there's, at the beginning of 1917, already a revolution underway, actually, as it happens, triggered by long, day-long, massive queues for bread by women. And across the year, the, uh, the revolutionary esprit, so to say, gathers pace and the the initiative is seized by the Bolsheviks. 
And the sense in which that's tricky is this, that it's in a society that has to make a new working class, a new uh, modern majority, so to say. It has to make institutions in which people um, make the great decisions that will shape their society um, amongst people who really are unpracticed and who are immediately besieged by war waged by the West and then thereafter um, beset by civil war. So Russia is very blooded when it's making this revolution. It's also uh, a revolution being made by um, people who have a kind of image of uh, what this working class will be that is very masculinized. This is uh, proletarian man, production man, muscular, heroic, pylons, tractors, steel, ships, coal. You know that kind of um, icon of the proletariat. And there is very little uh, ideological commitment or sensitivity, really, to that other side of, uh, of any national economy, which is not just production, the production of things, but the production of life itself, the sphere of what you might call social reproduction. So let's just imagine what all of that amounts to, then. A landscape um, blooded by war, a society almost on its knees, with a very militaristic by then and uh, masculinized view of what the heroes of the revolution will be. And it's that combination, I think, of masculinism and militarism that then infuses Soviet politics thereafter. And it produces a society that's unsustainable. So it was a miraculous moment, and it was a project that was ultimately doomed. I understand the arguments that you're making in the way that you've analysed the Russian Revolution. I want to put a few things to you about that, mm. though. The, the first one is the dynamics of revolution are real. They're, they're actually realised on the ground. Capitalism has its own momentum. The working class was in a position of responding to that. And, and while, yes, the leaders of the Russian Revolution were politicised and had a theory against which to assess all of those actions on the ground, obviously they made mistakes. There's no way we're going to get through a discussion about the Russian Revolution without dealing with the mistakes. But those elements of the working class that actually have the power to overthrow capitalism might very well have been those heavy industries and surely it's a reflection of sexism in society that those industries were dominated by men rather than an inherent failing of the political ma masterminds of the revolution uh, to put women at the front of that. And in fact, you, you mentioned women were at the front of the, Ru the Russian Revolution. The bread queues and International Women's Day is precisely what um, catalyzed and, and sparked the Russian Revolution. All of that is true. Um, I think the point I'm trying to make, however, is this, that uh, the, that revolutionary project has a number of um, 
almost unbearable weights uh, to carry. First of all, it's in a society that is, um, is wretched. And in the revolutionary moment in, in 1917, it is undoubtedly the case that people have the intoxicating, thrilling experience of becoming the people. Um, uh, no longer serfs, no longer uh, subordinate to the absolute and whimsical power of this unheeding czar. It was undoubtedly thrilling, and every account I've ever read of the um, uh, of people's experience, of ordinary people's experience of um, of those huge changes in 1917, is. Uh, is an experience of, uh, of joy, desperation in some respects, fear in some respects, but of joy. And I think we can't underestimate, we can't overestimate, rather, what that must have felt like. However, the difficulty for the Bolsheviks is that they embark on a revolutionary project virtually alone. So their, their first relationship to the other great movements involved in the revolution of 1917 is hostile and sectarian and ultimately becomes uh, menacing and dangerous. So I think there's quite a feeling now that it was a tragic mistake of the Bolsheviks to not hold on to the business of building alliances with other revolutionary, uh, other revolutionary elements, other other elements of their great movement, and that that sectarianism afflicts the great revolution workers' revolutionary movements elsewhere. The the classic example being in Germany in the 1920s and the 1930s, the place where people would have expected. Um, this kind of workers' revolution to take place. The German Communist Party is beset by the most profound and devastating sectarianism that is its undoing. Now, in the case of uh, Russia, of course, that becomes, as we now know, um, a paranoid kind of politics that is hugely destructive of, uh, of well, elements within the society that the Bolsheviks needed, um, experts, for instance. Uh, and it becomes, uh, it becomes a deadly, deadly uh, way, of doing, way of doing business. It produces, ultimately, the gulag. Uh, and that, that's its tragedy. You talked about um, one of the failings of the Bolshevik movement was that it failed to build alliances. In other words, it failed to internationalise it's not as though those debates weren't being had. Some sides of that debate lost. In fact, the internationalist side of that debate lost in favour of a different analysis, a first Russia and then the others kind of an analysis of overthrowing capitalism. Do you? How much of that is politics? How much of it was inevitable how much of it was the cult of the personality, the personality of Joseph Stalin versus the other leaders of the movement at the time? I think, uh, obviously, the, the first imperative that they 
that, that drives the revolution is the revolution is holding on to what has been gained in a society where there were, um, at best, precarious institutions for an embryonic democracy. So uh, the Russians are learning as, uh, as they're going along. They're emerging from a war. They're, um, they've got hugely solid um, international connections. But the problem is, of course, that there isn't an echoing revolutionary wave across the rest of Europe. So they are on their own. Are they going to hang on to the revolution? Of course. They, they will it into being. Um, what I'm trying to suggest is that the, the, the Bolsheviks... Um, um, first phase of sectarian go-it-aloneness, so to say, begins to set a template for a political practice within Russia that um, uh, that wounds the society, I think. It wounds it terribly. Internationally, most of the communist parties that are set up at the beginning of the 1920s are set up in order to um, wrap themselves around this great revolutionary moment. And they do it despite, over the years, the evidence of, um, well, the purges in the, the 1930s, the show trials. These are, really, these are really some awful, awful things. Awful things that, by the time the truth gets to be told, First of all, by Khrushchev in his secret speech in 1957, really grieves uh, the international communist movement. And then again, when Gorbachev, um, in a, a second heroic moment of candor, tries to open the books on the society, by then, of course, it's too late. The point is that this internationalist movement is also broken by the um, the imperatives of the Soviet Union, its its own national interests, and by the twisted perceptions of Stalinism. Um, and it has to survive all of that, and ultimately it can't. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. I'm speaking with Beatrix Campbell, author of nine books, the latest of which is called End of Equality. Campbell is on a speaking tour in Australia, hosted by the Search Foundation, discussing the issues that face working people of the world in light of the 100-year anniversary of the Russian Revolution. At the same time that the gulags were developing, um, that we start to see cracks in the the revolutionary momentum in Russia. We, I mean, you talked about the war. I mean, the the Russian Revolution emerged in and as a response to the. Um, conditions in the First World War, but of course there is the Second World War where uh, is after the revolution, Stalin is in power. Um, we have the, the famous line, first Hitler, then us. Um, fascism, the development of fascism, all of these things are representations of capitalism in crisis. What do you say about the failings of the Russian Revolution in relation to combating the growth, the development of fascism? Well, it's partly, of course, um, capitalism in crisis, but capitalism also ascendant. Um, the, 
the Russians adopt what becomes, you know, initially a very controversial and tactical relationship to uh, to the rise of fascism, which is part, which is hugely steered towards its own survival. By the time Russia enters the Second World War and is in the Second World War, um, then we have this Herculean battle between. Um, uh, the Germans and the Russians, I think most memorably uh, represented in the in Shostakovich's uh, Leningrad Symphony and in the, the narratives we now have available to us about how that music was made, the musicians who rehearsed and made it, some of them dying in the, um, in the time that it took to rehearse this piece. They were so weak, so frail, but so determined. And then the moment when the the music is made and broadcast. Extraordinary, just extraordinary, heart-stopping heroism happening in a country which is also, uh, is that, is that, and yet is fatally undermined, well, not fatally undermined, but seriously undermined internally by Stalin's appalling decisions in relation to the military, the military leadership. And then, of course, we emerge from that with what for uh, an entire generation, my parents' generation, is, is perceived to be the great Russian contribution to the outcome of the Second World War and a huge feeling of gratitude to the Russians for surviving and to the Red Army for liberating Berlin. Even that story ends up being horribly compromised, of course, finally, by the, uh, the rape narrative of the Red Army, that the Red Army went into Berlin and raped the women of Berlin. Um, and that's testament, I think, to something I was trying to say at the beginning, that the, uh, the, the masculinization of socialist politics, the sexism of that socialist politics is, is its undoing. It is unsustainable. I have to say I'm very relieved that my parents, who, who loved the Soviet Union, um, Russia was the territory of many arguments between us, um, would have been aghast to have discovered what happened in Berlin. They would have found that just devastating and heartbreaking. Do you think that sexism is inherent to socialism? Do you think socialism can evolve and develop theoretically to overcome sexism? I don't think that sexism is inherent in socialism at all. I think that, um, uh, that the feminist contribution to the, the socialist idea is absolutely essential, however, and I think without it that what gets produced is societies that promote the notion of equality uh, for women, but only really at the level of employment. There isn't um, a reform of the division of labour between men and women and, and between paid and unpaid labour. All of the socialist societies that we know about that weren't feminist revolutions at the same time as they were socialist revolutions depended massively on the unpaid labour of women. 
and that underdevelopment of the world of social reproduction, by which I mean, you know, how humans get made in everyday life, the underdevelopment of that produces a situation in the 1980s where, for example, in Russia, millions of women felt that their experience of equality was of exhaustion and the term had become just hugely compromised and unalluring. So for for people like me and perhaps indeed uh, for for you, the, the, the redemption of the socialist project lies in feminism. Uh, without it, well, we know what it looks like and it's not attractive. Do you think socialism or fighting for a socialist world is still a project that is viable for the working masses of the world? Something really interesting is happening in Britain. 30 years of neoliberalism um, since Margaret Thatcher was elected in 1979. And what we've experienced is the, the, the restructuring of our society, the enfeebling of local government, massive redistribution of resources away from working class people and away from women, actually. Indeed, the, uh, uh, the 2010 Liberal Democrat Conservative Coalition introdu- introduction of an austerity budget, the um, a heroic Labour woman, Yvette Cooper, with her calculator, reckoned that 72% of the burden of austerity was assigned to women and 28% to men. So women have really borne the cost of austerity. Out of all of this is emerging um, something that nobody really expected in Britain, which is the reinvigoration of the Labour Party. Uh, it's now the biggest party in Europe. And, uh, and all because of the possibility of a reinvigorated socialist, democratic socialist agenda. And at first, as you'll all be aware, this attracted the ridicule, uh, not to say rage, of the Westminster commentariat. But they've had to really wise up because the the Corbyn moment has, uh, has become enduring. And at the... Um, the last general election, the manifesto of the Labour Party, which, you know, at one level would be familiar to everybody. It's um, a manifesto for democratic socialism, for a social democratic society. And many commentators, even on the right, were saying, hmm, what's to not like? So there is a democratic surge taking place in Britain now which by the time we get to the next general election may yield uh, a British Prime Minister who unashamedly will allow the word socialist to pass his lips. And uh, it's very interesting because there are two generations who are involved in this, this democratic surge. One, a generation that was born at the end of the Second World War, who, like me, really, are... The, the beneficiaries of our welfare state, many of whom have been in and out of the Labour Party, you know, join it with goodwill, only to feel appalled and disgusted, um, and then leave for a bit and rejoin that element in the Labour Party now, and a generation of people under 40 who've never joined uh, 
a political party before, but for whom the the basic tenets of a democratic socialist society are hugely exciting. So we are, uh, and the, the conversation is animated by a feeling that the neoliberal thing has hit the buffers. And even if it hasn't hit the buffers, it's horrible and has to be resisted. That was Beatrix Campbell, writer, broadcaster and feminist activist based in the UK. Campbell is on a speaking tour in Australia, hosted by the Search Foundation. She's discussing the issues that face working people of the world in light of the 100-year anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Women on the Line. Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at womenontheline at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. It's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Women on the Line page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. As we go marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill grey, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses. For the people hear us singing Bread and roses, bread and roses As we go marching, marching We battle to for men For they are women's children And we mother them again Our lives shall not be sweated From birth until life closes Hearts starve as well as bodies Give us bread, but give us roses As we go marching, marching Unnumbered women dead Go crying through our singing Their ancient call for bread Small art and love and beauty Their drudging spirits new Yes, it is bread we fight for But we fight for roses too As we go marching, marching We bring the greater days The rising of the women Means the rising of the race No more the drudge and idler Tend that toil where one reposes But a sharing of life's glories Bread and